Hey everybody, name's uh, Kent Woodrow, I'm the associate pastor here at Holy Cross, for those of you who I haven't gotten the chance to meet yet. Um, hey, if you are a part of Holy Cross, I just, I think it's exciting, right? We are in this, in this season, we are like a, just a handful of months out from everything that we have been yearning for, in some senses, for years, and in other sense, like for many, many months, Right? We're, we're very close. And I hope, I hope that just causes your heart to beat a little faster. The Lord has been so faithful to us and, and we should celebrate that. Um, hey, as exciting as a new building and a new lead pastor are, this is exciting. The fact that we get to come together and focus on Jesus, that is exciting. And I hope that today's passage will really stir your heart uh, to, to the worship of our Lord. It's honestly one of my favorite passages. Uh, you can turn to it now. It's Colossians 1. We're going to read verses 15 through 23. Colossians, uh, this is our, our series that we've entitled, Jesus First, Only, and Always. Because in this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about how Jesus is first, only, and always. Hey, um... Question, if you had to answer this question, I'm just curious, what would you say? What is Christianity all about? What is Christianity all about? I mean, it might seem kind of, I mean, it it should go without explanation, right? You'd think, but you'd be surprised at how often we Christians get this wrong, the answer to that. Christianity is all about the Christ. Christianity is about the Christ. See, over the centuries, Christians have tried to make Christianity about self-improvement, about improving society, about taking down oppression, uh, maybe um, upholding certain traditions or, or political leaders or else overthrowing them. Christians have also tried to make Christianity about obeying rules, about private mystical connections, about having an ecstatic experience or an experience of power. Christians have even tried to make Christianity about things like Bible reading, acts of kindness, about about church going, about getting your doctrine just right, about care for those in need, about winning souls. And all those are good things, but they're not the thing, right? Christianity, let us never forget this, Christianity is about the Christ. It's about our Jesus Christ. Again, remember, Christ is the, is the Greek word for uh, the Messiah term, the anointed one, which means king. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ because without Jesus, we don't have Christianity. And honestly, with, without Jesus Christ, uh, Christianity is no different from any other religious, moral, ethical, political system out there, right? Jesus Christ is central. That is what our passage today unapologetically points us to. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So if you're able and willing, our habit here is to stand out of respect for the word, so please stand. As together we read Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is about Jesus. It's the true word of the living God, and he gives it to you because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, over, over the next several minutes, I ask that you would send your spirit to exalt your son. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts so that none of us would leave this room unchanged. I pray that you would open our eyes to behold our savior, to fall more in love with him. And Jesus, I ask that when all is said and done, you would be honored and glorified in every heart here. Lord, we pray that. Because, and it's a huge prayer, but we believe that you can answer that prayer. And we ask it, Jesus, for your glory and in your name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so if you are looking at the sermon outline that's in your bulletin, you've probably noticed by now that our, our sermon title is the exact same as our series title, Jesus, first only and always. And maybe you think that's a little like cheating. Come on, Kent, didn't have creativity. Hey, I'll do you one better. Our three points are first, only, and always, right? Uh, hey, why the redundancy? Here's why. Because this passage today that we are studying, this passage is the heart of the book of Colossians. It is the whole point of everything that this letter is about. Everything else that we read from the Apostle Paul to these Gentile Christians who lived in Colossae, which is modern day Turkey now, um, everything springs from these eight verses. This is the foundation. And y'all, it's all about Jesus. Here's my hope for us, right? Um, so our three points the first one's gonna be long, the next one's gonna be middling, and the last one's gonna be short, right? Just giving you, giving you a heads up. And the first one focuses very intensely on Jesus. Here's my hope in this whole sermon. Um, I want you to come away wondering. This might be a little hard because sometimes the sermon may feel like it doesn't have a ton to do with you. Jesus always has a lot to do with us, right? But if you, if you love Jesus, this will be like looking your lover in the face and saying, is he not glorious? That is what Paul is doing in these verses. And so let's start off with, uh, with the first point. Jesus first. 
All right, let's look at verses 15 through 18, okay? Uh, what point is Paul driving home here? What do, you, what do you hear? He's the firstborn. All things were created for him. He is before all things. He is the head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be preeminent. You get the point? Jesus is first. So in these, in these pictures, Paul gives us, or in these verses, Paul gives us five pictures that I'd like us to unpack here to help us understand, that underscore how pivotal Jesus is. He, he's the climax of the story. He's the linchpin of the universe, holding everything together. And friends, we could spend forever, like honestly, I wish we could, we could spend forever unpacking every one of these images and phrases, um, but we're only gonna touch on them briefly. Please spend seven hours in your next small group meeting discussing all this. Um, but let's start with the first image, or the first picture is image. Verse 15, the very beginning. He is the image of the invisible God. All right, what does that mean? All right, well, first, and like most basically, it means that if you want to know what the invisible God is like, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. You want a living picture of God? You want to know who he is and, and how he well, how he would do life in this world. You want, you want something tangible on which to, to build your understanding of an intangible God? You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. See, there's, there's no clearer picture uh, or representation of the invisible God than the man Jesus. Why? Well, because as, as Paul makes clear, not just in this passage, but throughout all of his letters, uh, Jesus is God. He's God in human form, right? So not only is Jesus the, the, uh, the living picture of God, but when you hear image, what, calls, what, what brings to mind? What do you hear when you hear the word image? Right? It, it calls to mind what we read back in, in Genesis 1 that Anne Maron read for us, where God makes human beings in his image. What does that mean? It means not only is Jesus the living picture of God, he's also the living picture of what we human beings were made to be. Everything we were created for, rebelled against, and have ever since failed to be. So if you want to know what it looks like to live truly human, to be a true human, to, to mirror God the way that we were made, to mirror him, you look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. He is the only human being that gets this right. So, He's the image, he's also the firstborn. We see that in the second bit of verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. All right, so what does that mean? Does that mean like uh, Jesus was actually the first thing made by God? All right, some, some cults out there who would claim to be Christian will use this passage to say that, to say that God made Jesus first. Uh, but that's not what firstborn means. It doesn't mean the one who is made first, as, uh, as you'll see in the very next verse, in verse 16, right? Because Jesus made everything. He wasn't made, rather, as the second person of God, the second person in the Trinity. He made everything, right? Friends, you look around and see it, Jesus made it. You look around and you don't see it, well, Jesus made that too. What's Paul's point? Jesus made everything, and so everything belongs to him. He has all authority, so any other authority is just derivative. What does that mean? All right, all the powers that be, be because Jesus lets them be. 
He has all authority. All right. Um, still doesn't quite answer well, what does firstborn actually mean then, all right? Uh, well, firstborn means heir, the person who inherits things. Because in, in, the, old, in, the, in the biblical world that Paul is writing in, the, the firstborn in the family was the one who inherited the family fortune, who got it all. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying Jesus is the firstborn of creation. That means all of creation belongs to him. Jesus gets it all. Why? Because not only did he make it as God, but as God, everything was made for the man, Jesus. Everything. So Jesus is not only the uh, image, and he's not only the firstborn, he's also the pro. And for all my young uh, youth Males in here are like, oh, basketball pro. No, no, no. This is, I'm, I'm taking the Greek preposition here uh, that we translate before. Jesus is pro. He is before all things. And so when, when uh, Paul is saying that Jesus is before all things, he's got two things specifically in mind. First, Jesus is before all things in time. Hey, uh, this, is, this is just admittedly hard to wrap your mind around. Okay, uh, but the man Jesus, born two thousand years ago, who had a very definite, like, physical beginning, he's also the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who existed for eternity before time. And if that blows your mind, it should. Before anything else was Jesus, more specifically, the second person of the Trinity. Son of God was. Second person of the Trinity, existing in eternity with God the Father, God, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this, this swirling vortex of love and satisfaction that existed before anything else was. One God in his three persons. So Jesus is before all things in time. He's also before all things in rank. He's pro before all things in rank. See, as God, Jesus is the top of the food chain. He's the alpha dog. He's the CEO. He's the commander in chief. He is the king, right? And so anyone who would supplant him as a rebel, you're not just rebelling against the chain of command. You're rebelling against the very created order. Jesus is the image. He's the firstborn. He's the pro. He's the one who's before all things. Um, and he's not only the maker, of all things. Second, the fourth image here is he is the sustainer of all things. You see that in uh, verse 17, the middle section there. In him, all things hold together. It's, it's kind of hard um, to capture exactly what this Greek word means, but I think the English does a fairly good job. Like you, you get the picture, right? He didn't just make everything. He holds it all together. See, Jesus is like gravity. If it weren't for him, our universe would fly apart and disintegrate into the waters of chaos, right? Like he not only swung galaxies into space and has kept our, or sent our electrons spinning, he holds everything in place. He made it all and he keeps it all running. I wasn't gonna do this, but just as a quick aside, right? Um, when you feel like things are flying off the handle, you feel like life is disintegrating, 
when you feel like everything is falling apart, just remember the God who breathed galaxies holding them together. The God who wrote your life story is holding it together. He is your God. It is our Jesus. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And then the final picture here is he is the head of the body. Verse 18, the very beginning, right? He's the head of the body. We get that image in English too, right? He's the head of the body of the church. Um, So that means Jesus not only has primacy of place in the church. he's, He's what church is all about. And without him, church is dead, right? If you do not have Jesus, you don't have a church. Uh, and, and Paul then fleshes this out using a couple uh, more word pictures in verse 18. He, he says, so he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. So what's Paul doing there? Is he taking us back to Genesis? I actually think no. I think Paul is, he's, he's talking about not creation, but recreation. See, Jesus is, he's a new beginning. He's a fresh start. See, with Jesus, God kicked into high gear his plan to restore this shattered world, to recreate what we human beings had had decreated, to begin the very end of the story. So Jesus is is the beginning. He's a new beginning. He's a fresh start. He's also, as, as the very last bit of verse 18, or the close to the last bit of verse 18 would say, he's the firstborn from the dead. See, Jesus was the first, in this case, to pass through death's clutches and reemerge on the other side, living and glorious. He's the first, and he will not be the last. See, Jesus is that crack in death's dam that, that releases the flood of life. See, he, uh, he is our living hope. He's the reason that we Christians can face death without fear. Because if Jesus made it through to the other side, then we can believe that he will not only pull us through the waters of death, but he will do the same for this whole death-eaten universe. Bring us through to the life that we were created for. Y'all, this I think it's this point of doctrine that, that just floored Paul because his entire life as a Pharisee, he was, he was leaning into the hope of the resurrection, didn't know where to find it. And then he meets the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and it shook everything in him and it shaped his thought. There was one who had conquered death and that proved he was God. He had won. There was life on the other side. So what's the point? Hey, in case we missed it with all the images and everything else, Paul makes it really explicit right there at the tail end of verse 18. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is preeminent as God. He's the maker of the world that we wrecked. Jesus is preeminent as the savior. He's he's the remaker of of the world and and, and the one who who is bringing that world to come into this life. Uh, He is preeminent as the head of his church. Friends, as the church, we we prefigure the world to come, the world that Jesus is creating. We we are the windows into that coming world, and Jesus is head over that. Friends, Jesus is first. Jesus is first. 
in all things. It's not only first. It's Jesus only, too. Verses 19 through 20. So, all right, so what does it mean that Jesus, it's Jesus only, right? Well, he's, he's utterly unique. There, apart from Jesus, not only is he utter, utterly unique, but there is no answer without Jesus. There's no answer to the brokenness of the world. Jesus is our only solution, our only answer. So where do we see that in this passage? All right, well, let's start with, uh, with this phrase in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God. What does it mean? What does that mean that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus? I want you to cast your mind back and kind of do a, a quick journey through the Bible, right? Because the Bible is actually really, it's full of fullness language. When God shows up, he fills. It's what God does. He fills his dwelling place with his blazing glory. He, he fills his people with his spirit. And he promises that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right, so after God had fashioned the first human beings out of dust and he filled their lungs with his wind, his breath, his spirit. Again, remember, those are all the same word in both Hebrew and in Greek. He fills their lungs with his spirit. What does he do? The first thing he commands these people made in his image to do is go and fill the earth with other human beings. Fill the earth with God's glory, with his dominion, right? But when we, when we human beings rebelled against God, we emptied ourselves of God's life-giving spirit, and now we fill this world with violence, with sin, with blood and darkness. See, friends, we human beings, we're not just cracked pots that are leaking the, the life-giving life out of us and not, not, instead of being able to fill, we're just leaking. No, we're not just cracked pots, we're chamber pots. We're filled with sewage and overflowing with mess. And, and if you don't believe me, because I, I, I know that can be a hard image, you're like, oh, that's, that's a rotten view of humanity. Well, just look around. Look at, look, at, look at the mess that we make, right? That is who we are. So we need somebody who is full of God's fullness. We need somebody who can restore us, who can clean us up, who can fill us again. We need, we need a fresh start. We need a man who's not just another man and able to crack under the pressure and leak, Right? to blow it all again. We, we need a man instead who is perfectly full of God. A man who is God. We need a God-man. And that is what we have in Jesus. Right? He, he is filled with God's fullness, not just because God uh, breathed his spirit into Jesus' lungs like he did in the first, uh, uh, in the case of the first man, Adam. No, he's filled with God's fullness because he is fully God, apart from his, because of his fullness, because he is filled, he is full of, of uh, what's it say here? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. From that, Jesus restores us, cleanses us, fills us, right? 
makes us everything that we can and should be. And friends, you can search the world over and you will not find anywhere else the fullness of God except in Jesus, the God-man. See, Jesus only can fill that aching void that was left in us when we rebelled against God and his spirit. Jesus only fills that void with his life-giving spirit that we lost. Jesus only can fill us so that then we can fill the world again with goodness and beauty and light, the things that we were made for. Hey, um, so just as a quick application then, what does it mean for us that Jesus only is the fullness of God? Friend, do you have Jesus? Do you have Jesus? As a church, that's what we want for you, right? We, we believe that he alone is enough. And we want you to have Jesus, right? To, to fill you. He's all you need. See, like, like the Colossians in Paul's day, you, you may hear, um, here's what you need to fill your life. Fill in the blank. This is what's going to truly satisfy you right here. I mean, that's what commercials do every Every time you see them, here's what you need to be truly satisfied. Here's a commercial, and it's totally true. Here's what you need to be truly satisfied. Jesus. Jesus. And him alone. Hey, if you're a Christian, and maybe you're feeling half full, maybe you're feeling dissatisfied, right? Um, then let me ask, uh, maybe, maybe that's because you've begun to fill your life with something that's not Jesus. And you're finding that that doesn't satisfy you. So here's my invitation to you, okay? If you're feeling dissatisfied, I think that's the Lord calling to you. It's the Lord exposing to you, hey, here's where you've made your life about something that cannot satisfy you the way I do. So here's what you do. You take that to the Lord. You say, Lord, here, here I am. I've been building my life on this and it is not delivering. Would you take that? Would you free me from making this central in my life? And would you instead fill me? That is scary. Have you ever done that? It is scary. Because you know what happens? You're afraid God's gonna rip that out of your hand, aren't you? And, and when he does, what's going to be left? But friend, if, if the Lord, one, he, he's very kind and gracious to us, right? He doesn't just rip things away for the sheer joy of it, like a, like a bad parent just ripping toys away from a kid, right? He takes away the things that are bringing us harm, right? But if he does take something away, it's only so that you will know that he satisfies. When he removes something from your life, it's so that he can fill that void in your life the way, he, the way you were made to be filled. So, um, maybe over this week, over the course of this week, an act of repentance, take before the Lord those areas where you are dissatisfied and say, Father, I'm giving these to you and I'm scared to do it. Would you fill me? because only you can provide the satisfaction that I'm leaning so heavily on a spouse to do, that I'm leaning so heavily on my job to do, that I'm leaning so heavily on my church to do. 
Only you, Jesus, can satisfy. So, not only is Jesus the fullness of God who, who fills us again to make us the, the overflowing fillers of the world with goodness and light, right? He's also the reconciliation that we see all over the uh, verses 20, and, 20 through 22, right? Uh, so, all right, quickly, what does reconciliation mean? That can be, a, the, uh, can be a harder term. Literally, reconciliation means to re-counsel together. It means to bring back into a group. It means to bring alienated, estranged parties back into the same room again, to sit them at the same table, to make them part of the same family. And I bet you a lot of us have had an experience like that. Estranged parties, trying to bring them back to the same table, right? Hey, why do we need reconciliation? Because in verse 21, we see we human beings have been estranged. We've been alienated. We've been cut off from relationship with God. Um, Again, we can't have relationship with somebody that you're trying to rebel against, right? And that's what we did. We rebelled against him. So we need to be brought back. Um, We need to be reconciled, recounseled, regrouped to be seated in the same room as the Lord at the same table in the same family. The beauty of it is we wouldn't have done that on our own. So the Lord did that. He went after us to bring us back into that room with him to the same table, to the same family, right? All right, so that's, that's what reconciliation is, why we need it, but what's up with all the talk of blood and, and death in these verses, right? Verses 20 to 22. Friend, death is the price of peace when there's rebellion, Death is the price of peace when there's rebellion. Hey, just think about the context in which this letter was written. Okay, Paul, the Colossians, the whole Mediterranean world at this time lived under the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, right? And how did the Romans uphold that peace? By lining the streets with crosses. You rebelled against Rome, you paid for it. And they made sure people saw you pay for it. Uh, you paid for it with your life in the most painful form of execution invented up to that time, a cross, right? It was a torture device used on rebels to warn people against rebellion. So friends, when we human beings rebelled, we didn't just rebel against the Roman war machine. We rebelled against the maker, creator God himself, right? But look at verse 20. Who is it that hangs on a cross? In verse 20. Making peace by the blood of his cross. The king himself. The king is the one hanging on the cross. Dying in the place of his people. Dying the death of a rebel. So that we didn't have to. See, he spilled the blood, the blood that was necessary so that we can be recounseled, regrouped, brought back to the same table, into the same room, and into the same family so that we could enjoy peace after our rebellion. Friends, you can search the world over and nowhere will you find reconciliation to God except in Jesus only. Jesus only will die for us 
and pay the death price of our rebellion. Jesus only brings us back into the room with God and to his table and into his family. Jesus only makes us everything that we need to be, which is is described here, holy. What does that mean? Set apart for God. Blameless, literally, without blemish. And finally, above reproach. No one to accuse you. Don't you want that? Holy, without blemish above reproach. Jesus only gives us that. Friends, we can search the world over and nowhere else will we find the fullness of God and reconciliation to God except in Jesus only. Jesus only can give us what we need. And so naturally, right, if, if Jesus only will do, can do that, then we need Jesus always too. Always and forever. Verse 23, right? This is, this is the, in case you're like, wow, we had these heights of, here's Jesus, and then Paul kind of just slams the Colossians in verse 23. Uh, here's the heart behind Paul's warning to the Colossians. Remember, because the Colossians were fearful. They were asking the question, is Jesus enough? Is, is there anything more that we need to, to really be safe, to really be in? Uh, do we need to look elsewhere? And Paul's answer to them is this resounding like, y'all, you have got it all, right? Jesus is all you need always. Don't let go of Jesus. Don't let go of Jesus and grab onto something else. It'd be like, uh, for those of you uh, who like to, to scramble and climb rocks and all that sort of stuff, you're a strange breed, but I'm gonna give you an illustration here, okay? Uh, it would be like that rock climber who, who is hanging on the side of a cliff, and they squirm out of their harness to grab onto a tuft of grass. Just don't do it. Just don't do it, right? Uh, Trust your harness. Don't shift. Don't shift because Jesus is that harness and he is all that keeps us from falling to a terrible death. And here's where Jesus is better than a harness, right? Because if you really wanted to, you could wiggle out of a harness. I imagine it's a very hard work and they make it hard for you to get out of that. But if you wanted to, you could wiggle out of a harness if you choose. But if you're climbing with Jesus, he's not gonna let you, right? Jesus is that, that climbing buddy, the one who holds on to us when we feel like we've got no strength to hold on to him. See, it's the beautiful truth uh, that we call the perseverance of the saints, if we're really Jesus's, we're gonna hold on to him. Wanna know why? Because he's holding on to us. So Paul challenges the Colossians. He says, uh, hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus always because Jesus was always the plan. He's the only plan. There is no backup plan. Jesus is it. Jesus first, Jesus only, and Jesus always. All right. So just as a, as a quick reflection as we wrap up, right? Um, Christian, back to our first question that we kicked the sermon off with. Is your, is your Christianity about the Christ? Christian, is your Christianity about the Christ? Because if it isn't, then it isn't Christianity. And if it's not Christianity, it can't rescue you. But if your Christianity is about the Christ. Here's the good news. 
if you've gone all in on Jesus, if you're not hedging your bets, if you're swinging out into eternity, trusting that you're gonna find Jesus as trustworthy on the other side of death as he has been on this side of life, here's the great news. Jesus is it. Jesus is it. There's no other option. There's no plan. There's nothing more that you need. He's the climax of the story. He, he's the linchpin that holds the universe together. Everything begins and ends with him. He's the maker and the remaker. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the pro before all things in time and in rank. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the head. He's the fullness of God. He's the reconciler. Jesus first. Jesus only, and Jesus always and forever. Amen. Let's go before him now. Lord, you know our hearts. You know that we are so tempted to fill our lives with anything and everything but you. That pull is strong, and we are drawn by our, by our wiring now that we have re broken and rebelled against you. We're drawn away from you. And so Father, I ask for each of my sisters and brothers in this room, keep their hearts held close to you. Draw our hearts to you, King Jesus. I pray that you would be everything to us, that you would be the one who matters most to us, that Father, everything else could fall by the wayside. And I know that's a hard prayer. Pray you'd give us courage to pray it, that everything else could fall by the wayside if we have you. So Father, Give us Jesus, we pray. Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts to, to fill us with a love for him, to fill us with his likeness, and to cause us to spread that likeness wherever we're at by pointing people to Jesus. Jesus first, Jesus only, and Jesus always, in whose name we pray.